Support for Talking Heart on WVIK comes from the people at Quad City Bank and Trust, helping the local community with their banking and financial needs for more than 20 years. Information is at qcbt.com. Support also comes from the estate of Margaret Skinner, a longtime friend of WVIK and lover of the arts. This is Carolyn Martin, and I'm talking art today with Dr. Tierney Brocious, Associate Professor of Biology at Augustana College, who is an entomologist by training, but is also an accomplished illustrator. And she uses art to effectively connect people with the insects that she studies. Welcome, Dr. Brocious. Hi, happy to be here. <laughs> you obtained your PhD in entomology from the University of Nebraska, and while you were a graduate student, took a scientific illustration class. Why do you think the practice of drawing helps us to connect us to a subject more deeply? I think that actually drawing something allows you to really slow down, really take notice of the details. And there's some evidence that suggests that physically drawing something allows um, your brain to really understand those, like the three-dimensionality of the thing that you're drawing. And it makes sense. Um, I think we live in a world where we're so connected to screens and keyboards. And as someone, you know, who thinks about human behavior a lot in terms of evolution. It makes sense that since we kind of evolved to use our fingers in countless ways that using some sort of instrument to draw really helps you um, connect those synapses in your brain, mm -hmm. you know. So I think I think I think that's part of it and it really in this fast-paced world just it's meditative to sit with something and really get to know it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you teach both zoology and entomology at Augustana, and I understand you have your students actually draw during some of their labs. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, a lot of them look at me like I'm crazy. Like they're they first are very apprehensive that I'm going to sit there and judge them, and perhaps they actually have never taken a drawing class. Maybe it's been since elementary school, and someone had convinced them that they're bad at drawing, or they convinced themselves. And really, I see it as for a lot of them who are thinking about medical school or going on to graduate programs, that this is another tool, you know, in your toolbox of ways of learning about the world. And um, by drawing something, even if it's a bad drawing, you know, we're talking stick figures, it still is a new way of communicating that information um, that can help them really process what they're learning. And, um, yeah, I, I encourage them to draw, I make them draw, and I promise that there's no judgment on my part. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's nice of you because I'm sure mine would be uh, rather dismal. Uh, but you had said earlier that it just simply takes practice. It does. It's, it's a lot like um, – I think it's a lot like learning to play an instrument. I mean, I, I, I took some piano lessons. I was never like, you know, brilliant musician, but I knew how to follow, you know, music. I could read music and I could play a few songs and I can still, you know, play a few Christmas carols and it's great. It's the same thing with drawing. It's, it's really a skill-based thing. You may never be, you know, uh, a gifted, you know, artist in the way that you can put together a composition in the way that Picasso or Monet or... But you, you could still learn some basics of drawing and I think most people would find it really... You know, once you, once you get that skill set, it's a, it can actually be a real pleasurable activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you are currently illustrating a book on insect conservation. How did this project come about? Well, uh, several years ago, and these projects tend to take a long time. Uh, I was just communicating with somebody who was in South Africa. He was one of the 
world's leader, world leader in insect conservation. And um, I'd read a couple of his books, and I was thinking about doing a Fulbright in South Africa. And so I put together my application, wanted to work on tiger beetles in South Africa. And that didn't go through. You know, it was a great disappointment. But about a month later, he contacted me and during our conversations knew that I could draw. And he's like, how about, you know, illustrating a book? And so I actually got to go to South Africa and spend some time with him and I think that in the past he had illustrators work with him, but having somebody who n- knows what's important when you're drawing a subject is is really important for entomologists. So we've been kind of working on this project for many years, and the deadline's coming up. How many illustrations do you think you'll make for the book? Well, it's a really heavily illustrated book, and it ended up that I, I love the concept of it. His name is Michael Samways, and he, he really sees the value in art in the same way that I do. And he wanted... Someone, because the way that I read a book, I'm a visual person. I tend to flip through and look at the figures first. Um, you know, any textbook, any, um, and even any sort of peer-reviewed journal article, I'm looking for those graphs and those sorts of things. And he wanted a person to kind of be able to flip through and get a lot of the content just by looking at the illustrations. So we're looking at over 10 illustrations. Somewhere, one chapter I think has closer to 20 per chapter. So I'm doing the first four chapters. We kind of decided that this wasn't a really a one illustrator gig to get this thing done in the timeline we wanted. But yeah, so I'm looking at close to probably 40 illustrations. Yeah, that's, um, that's a lot. And yeah. these these are in black and white. What what materials do you use? Well, at the moment, um, we found that we wanted things um, to be black and white because it's cost. You know, we wanted the textbook price to um, be reasonable for most people to have. And when you get into color, it gets a lot more expensive. Right now, I'm using Scratchboard and pen and ink. And it the nature of the illustrations kind of border between, um, you know, a scientific illustration, but not super fine scale. So a little bit, little cartoony, but not in too silly of a way, you know, something that um, is definitely pleasurable to look at. Um, I was talking to someone and they kind of connected it um, to almost like uh, looking at a, not a children's story, but, you know, something that's, that's, that's engaging and interesting. No, so if you make a mistake, um, when you're making these these detailed illustrations, you have mm-hmm. so many to do. How do you correct that? Well, that's kind of why I decided um, Scratchboard was the way to go because I'm a busy person. I'm uh, you know I've got kids and stuff, so inevitably someone's going to run by and there's going to be a mistake. Um, so the nice thing about Scratchboard is it's um, I think it's masonite board with several layers of gesso put on it, so it's almost like a clay. And the nice thing is is you put the ink down and then you can lift the ink off by using I use a um, a razor blade and um, it and just a little exacto knife and I can actually pull um, pigment up so you kind of mess up you can take the pigment off you can add pigment I mean there there is a certain number of times you can do this before huh. so there's a little forgiveness in yes it, in the it. forgiveness is really nice and then um, since I'm pulling these images into Adobe Illustrator then if a lot of times these illustrations will be multiple little drawings that then I will orient inside of the program. You need to become pretty good with computers because it's great when you're working with a scientist and the illustrator really, it's a team process. And the illustrator will draw something and bring it to the scientist and the scientist will make comments and be like, actually, it would be it would depict what's actually happening here a bit better if you would move this part or make this this leg needs to be longer. There need to be more hairs on this structure. And um, the best um, scientific illustrators, I think, are good at communicating with scientists. And we can be a quirky bunch. So, 
you know, you told me earlier that artists who are not scientifically trained, who don't have that scientific background, often tend to enhance the scary aspect of insects. And, and since you're a scientist who also happens to draw well, you, you portray them more accurately. Why do you think there is this misperception about insects? Well, I, I think that there's just kind of this I think it's what it makes insects a wonderful subject to begin with. I think that there is kind of this mystery around them, but everyone knows what an insect is. So there's both familiarity and also, yeah, it's it's kind of a, a paradox in a way. Uh, insects are kind of paradoxical in my mind. You know, they're they're terrifying, yet we need them. You know, like if we didn't have insects, we would all, you know, we couldn't continue to live on this planet. They're so vital to, you know, everyday life. And... Um, we all know what they are, you know, they're super abundant, yet we, like even, a lot of people refuse to even acknowledge their presence, even though we're, we're even sitting in the studio right here, I guarantee within 10 feet of us, there's some sort of arthropod lurking about, you know, and I know no one likes to think about that. Yeah, and they also don't look like us. And, yeah. and you had used this term that I loved called charismatic megafauna. <laughs> so just describe that that term, and, and that explains somewhat to the listener why, you know, why we recoil a little bit at insects mm-hmm. and why we don't connect with them as, as well. Yeah. So a lot of times entomologists will kind of talk about these charismatic megafauna with a little bit of, uh, oh, I don't know, a little bit of angst because it's, it's, that's where the funding goes, right? Like conservation programs. But, every, but what is a characteristic megafauna? Yeah. So, so when we think of uh, a charismatic megafauna, it's often things like tigers and monkeys and things that have big brown eyes and sweet faces and um, what we perceive as like beautiful plumage. Um, and so a lot of conservation um, efforts for things like tigers and birds and things like that tend to you know, not have a hard time raising money, but things like um, the Salt Creek tiger beetle that I worked on for my dissertation, uh, that was just a little brown bug, you know, kind of, it was the same color as the mud, but having people, I think that that is a really great conversation starter because you can start talking about then why do we value nature? Is it only because it's pretty? Is it only because it's fluffy or do other organisms have the right to coexist with us on this planet? How do we value things? Right. And I think that is a really important conversation is because because some of these animals have characteristics that that remind us of ourselves, mm-hmm. like a panda bear or yeah. something. We may be more um, apt to contribute to to conservation efforts, but mm-hmm. um, but less so for your study um, mm-hmm. object, which we'll talk about in a little bit, the yeah. Salt Creek tiger beetle. The good thing is with, you know, some of these charismatic megafaunas, we often refer to them as being umbrella species. And the interesting thing is, yes, there are scientists that are passionate about the panda bear or the tiger, but really what most, I think most scientists, if you really got down to it, are talking about the fact that by saving the tiger, you're actually saving you know, countless number, you know, a countless number of organisms that are, that are often sometimes even not described yet that live in those same forests and jungles and things like that, that um, by saving the charismatic megafauna, oftentimes there's kind of a trickle down effect. And it's sad that these organisms that are spectacular in their own right, you know, kind of are an afterthought. And I think by, um, you know, using art and um, having scientists talk about their research more openly, you know, there are a lot more scientists working on insects than there are working on pandas in the world. Um, but I think that there is kind of this new attention being drawn to how do we engage with the public? How do we talk about um, the research that's really important to us? And um, my way has been to kind of harness that interest and talent in art 
Um, and and very effectively because your your PhD dissertation was on the Salt Creek tiger beetle, and as an offshoot of that work, you you published an article uh, in the scholarly journal American Entomologist, in which you showed how the visual arts can increase the public's awareness and interest in in this endangered species that you're studying. Yeah, it was really a neat opportunity. I have to credit my dissertation advisor, Leon Higley. Um, for letting me kind of have my, you know, fun side project. And while I was in graduate school, I really became um, involved with the Guild of Natural Science Illustrators and currently serving on their board. And by doing that and kind of having friends in the art community, we kind of came up with this idea, you know, of um, putting together an exhibit. So I had to apply for the exhibit. I had to apply for some funding and then, you know, go through and um, invite artists, you know, to come and participate in this. Um, I wish I had a letter. One of the artists agreed before he knew what he was getting himself into. And then he was like, what is this It was little, you know, beetle that I'm drawing? But still, it was a fantastic uh, uh, experience just to bring all these artists in. And uh, they all had their own kind of perspective and connection with the beetle and um, connection with that property. So I, I think, I mean, I know it was a it was a pretty successful exhibit overall. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And the, the beetle is native to Nebraska. Mm-hmm. So that's where the exhibit was. Yeah. And it, it just really enhanced, it sounds like, the public's perception of it because as part of the protection of this species, um, many acres of land was were, were set aside and, and protected. Yeah, yeah. And they're currently... Um, you know, I, I have since left that project, but um, they've currently partnered with Omaha Omaha Henry Dorley Zoo, and there's still a lot of efforts moving forward. Um, and I think that that was my attempt to have um, Lincoln, Nebraska, where this beetle is found, take some ownership of that insect. This is not just any insect. This is our insect. This is Lincoln, Nebraska's insect. We should be proud of it because, you know, I think um, when the local people start to kind of have an appreciation for and at least um, feel like they're, they're caretakers, that they, you know, that they should have some pride in these unique habitats that are right outside their door. And really the Salt Creek tiger beetle, while it's unique, it's really the entire wetland there. There's um, really very few saline wetlands in the middle of the Midwest. Usually saline wetlands occur close to oceans. Um, but because um, from, you know, the deep history of Nebraska being a shallow ocean at one point in time, there are these salt deposits. And there's a whole grouping of plants and insects there that are adapted for um, the, specifically those saline wetlands. And so and so when, when people went to see that exhibit, they were more attracted to the art. Is that right? Than the actual insect? Or did it, or, or was there kind of a synergistic effect in the art, viewing the art just happen to deepen their um, deepen their attachment or their interest um, or their perspective on it? Well, that's a question that I was really interested in. So as part of the exhibit, I did um, administer a survey and, um, you know, kind of had people identify if they were, you know, were, the, were they scientists? Because I, I felt like that was kind of a self-selecting group. Like, yeah, they all thought that the insect was neat. But I was really interested in people who maybe were not you know, didn't know a lot about insects, maybe didn't even know a lot about the wetland. And I think that by seeing um, some pretty interesting pieces of art in connection with this little insect that maybe some of them weren't even really aware of, that was right outside their door, I think they that the art and then also some of the information we had provided and pinned specimens, um, I think it was a real synergistic effect. And I, I, I think it was... Um, pretty successful at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. that's that's just great. Yeah. Do you, do you think that there's a trend is that 
is the conservation movement incorporating art more frequently into their educational outreach programs? Because art does elicit an emotional response from us. Yeah. Um, yes, I think absolutely that the, the conservation efforts and um, those those organizations who um, try and promote organisms um, and conservation movements definitely are using artists. I know a lot of programs that even have like artists in residence that the artist will come and work alongside the scientists and get to know the organism that they're studying and then they'll produce some art at the end. But at the same time, I think, um, I think the conservation effort in a way is a focus for many artists out there because I think art historically has always kind of reflected what's, what's happening in our society. And right now, um, what's happening in the world is scary. And I think that a lot of artists see this as something that we should all be prioritizing, Mm -hmm. that it's clear we're losing um, species diversity at a faster rate than we've ever lost in history, um, at least in human history. And um, we know who's responsible for it. You know, 300 years ago or, you know, 10,000 years ago when the mammoths were disappearing, we didn't, you know, we didn't really know why it was happening. But now we do and we know it's us. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are a lot of wonderful artists out there that are um, trying to get us to view that in a different way. As a scientist, I think my job is to kind of say what the facts are and try and display like, you know, and give data. This is the data and this is um, what I can tell you. But I think oftentimes the artist's role then is to help, um, help the society come up with their own questions, you know? And I think that that's important. If, if we don't ask questions about why things are important or why is this happening, um, I think that's different than being told. Right. You know? Right. And and with the changes in our culture that you were alluding to, we are becoming more detached from the natural world, Mm -hmm. sadly. So at the same time that we're losing habitat and species diversity, we're not – Away. We're not caring as much because we're not out there. We're not. Um, we're not spending as much time in nature. We're spending more time indoors, glued yeah. to our screens. Yeah, and I mean, I see this a lot, even with my students. I mean, and of course, my students as biology majors tend to be kind of outdoorsy types. But um, sometimes I get students that are like in my entomology class, and they only had to take it because they needed an upper level elective. And I'm sorry, Dr. Brocious, but I'm terrified of insects. <laughs> I, I'm sorry if I scream out loud during your class at some point. And, you know, I have seen this happen again and again. But the more that we know about something, the more we grow to value it and the less scared we are of it. Like, mm-hmm. So many people are scared of insects. But as soon as someone starts making an insect collection, oftentimes they're like, these are amazing. You know, They are amazing. And why do you think that insects elicit this fear response? Because because uh, it's something that's learned. Yeah. It, it's I not think maybe, something that we're, I don't think, inherently born with. I think maybe there's a little bit of some instinctual, you know, aversion to something that surprises you. You know, I'll jump if a insect jumps on me unexpectedly. And something unexpected that you're not sure what it is at first and you need to make sure that it, as soon as you know it's not something that's going to bite or sting, you're fine. So um, I think there is maybe just a little bit of a fear response that's that's ingrained in us. But I think the problem is instead of encouraging our children to, uh, oh, take a second, look at it. Well, what is it? You know, and that's and the, isn't that interesting. Is, yeah. And that's, I actually make my uh, students aren't allowed to say that's gross in my classes. They're only allowed to say that something's interesting. So I hear a lot of, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but um, I think that the more you know about something and with insects often, if, if I think it's just being empowered to know that this thing isn't going to bite or sting me, you know, it's, it's, 
And actually 99% of the insects out there aren't going to hurt you. It's really just this small minority of things that could possibly cause you some problems. And living in the Midwest, we've got it pretty easy here. Mm -hmm. There aren't a whole lot of things out there that are going to hurt you. Um, And, you know, the the biggest thing, you know, you've got a few bees that buzz around out there. But really, you've got to be really making them mad before they (laughs) usually... Go for you. Yeah. <laughs> now, you're also co-authoring a book chapter on the connection between modern art and insects. So tell us a little bit about this work and what topics you're exploring. Yeah. So this work, it's an exciting project. It's still, um, I think they're still getting all the authors kind of together. It's a, I forgot, I think it's like a seven volume set of books and I cannot That's wait huge. to read them. Yeah. And each So the books start with antiquity and go clear up through the modern era, each kind of focusing on a different part of human history. And the whole series is focusing on cultural entomology. So how have insects influenced human culture at different points throughout history? And um, they're kind of getting bunches of authors with different areas of expertise um, to contribute. So my contribution with um, Barrett Klein, who's at the University of Wisconsin on La Crosse, is... um, to talk about insects and modern art. And that was kind of the original like approach. Oh, talk about insects and modern art. And then you realize like that's that's a book in itself. So um, Dr. Barrett Klein and I decided to um, look at it through the lens of insects in modern art that convey something about um, the, the state of the environment. So artists that are making some sort of commentary on um, some sort of environmental impact that's happening. So climate change, pollution, um, these sorts of topics and how artists choose to address those things using insects as um, kind of their muse. Yeah. So are these more modern pieces of art or Mm -hmm. are you going back quite a ways in time? No, we're just entirely focusing on modern. So probably, you know, in the, um, you know, since 20th century. Yeah. Yeah. So um, just because, I mean, if you start going back further, I mean, there's, there's, I, I assume that other volumes of the books are going to be looking at insects in different time periods, um, probably insects in, you know, Egyptian, you know, mythology and um, things like that. And the great thing, um, American Entomologist is uh, really good about, you know, having different articles once in a while. About, you know, like it, Dolly, for example, has got some really fantastic uh images of insects and how he was inspired and those sorts of things. So there's a lot of... That's Salvador Dali. Yeah, Salvador Dali. Yeah. And um, so just looking at how insects are kind of um, informing current uh, in the current state of the environment. So mm-hmm. um, a lot of times it can be things like maybe um, having... I know one exhibit featured lots of like monarch butterflies kind of hanging from the ceiling and essentially just... Um, really kind of diving in the sort of things is how, why are insects particularly useful or uniquely useful to talk about, um, in, you know, environmental, um, concerns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We know there's this curious connection between entomologists and artists. I, uh, historically there've been other painters and artists who happen to study insects. So I wonder why that connection exists. You know, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of the entomologists I know, um, have a very artistic nature to them. And I think it has something to do with um, kind of the the spe- spectacular diversity that you find in insects. Um, and if you really take a look at some of the amazing insects are out that are out there, I, I know I was drawn to them because of their um, 
the, the way that they look and their beauty, really. And you, you know, rarely anywhere else in nature do you find an animal that is neon pink and purple and has spines all over them and has, you know, metallic green sheen. I mean, the there's a gaudiness to them that you only really find with plants, <laughs> huh. you know, I didn't like think flowers. About that. So, so there's just more of a tendency to want to capture it yeah, yourself I think in, so. with, in drawing yeah. or painting. Yeah, drawing and painting. And I mean, maybe they were the original Pokemon. I know like there's a lot of avid <laughs> amateur collectors. And I know that, um, you know, I'm, I'm on Facebook and, and there's a lot of these collecting blogs and people will show their parts of their insect collections. And I know a lot of people see that, see that as a level of cruelty, you know, because it does consist of dead organisms. Um, but when I talk to my students, it's it's not that it's done for the, the pleasure of the killing. This is actually a serious scientific practice. And um, in order to really describe a new species or to really understand an insect, you have to get it underneath of a microscope. Um, you, in order to s- study like the diversity, um, you have to kind of get a full idea of what the diversity is by collecting several specimens. And most adult insects really have a short lifespan of only a couple of weeks, and there are millions of them. So taking a couple of specimens is actually relatively sustainable Hmm. um so yeah i I do kind of get kicked back once in a while but the cruelty you know of of, we don't put a pin through them when they're alive there's a humane way to kind of you know put them under and um uh oftentimes it's the freezer or something like that and um yeah so it's kind of an interesting conversation i have with my students when they're like worried about making an insect collection because of ethical concerns Mm -hmm. and i you know we 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 have that conversation and if it's for um science and for to gain information about something and an appreciation especially in a class um and the nice thing is when they do their insect collections in my class um, they have the choice of keeping it but they can also contribute and that we have insects that were collected by Augustana students from the 60s, you oh, know, so that's that's, in, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And they, and they kind of get to be part of the legacy of Augustana. And they know that things that they collected will be used by by students in the future to learn more about, you know, the world around them. So it's yeah. kind of fun. You became interested in entomology as a, as a child, yeah. um, playing, playing outdoors, but you also have been drawing for many, many years. So were the two inter- interests intertwined at all, or did they develop separately? I think they were. I think that all of my interests, you know, I was always interested in, in science. I was always interested in art. I, you know, told my kindergarten class that I wanted to be an entomologist. I mean, it wavered. I think I wanted to own a Dairy Queen there for a while, too. So <laughs> it wasn't always one, you know, one thing. But uh, I was always fascinated. And I think that my fascination turned to drawing them. And then I did um, insect collections for my 4-H projects. And... Um, so they were all kind of constantly intertwined. And it wasn't until I got to graduate school that I knew that there was a way to really, um, that there was even a career path to combine those those things, that, that scientific illustration was something that people did for a living. Um, so I took art classes in college, you know, as an undergraduate, but um, it was just kind of this, you know, I would sneak them in once in a while when I could um, because I liked drawing as a hobby. But, um, but now it's kind of great that it's really become part of my career. Right. It really distinguishes you from mm-hmm. other entomologists because yeah. you have this amazing skill. And we'll put some pictures on the, on the website for people to, mm-hmm. to see. Yeah, I was excited this year. Uh, I contributed a piece for the, the logo for the American, you know, the um, 
Entomological Society of America is actually using some of, you know, I helped out with the logo. I can't see the logo. It was kind of a, a team project, so it's not entirely mine, but um, it was a fun project anyway, so. Yeah, well, that's great. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Tierney Brocious, Associate Professor of Biology at Augustana College and Entomology Illustrator, thank you so much for talking today. You're welcome. Well, it's been delightful, and best of luck with the completion of your book illustration and with all of your other projects. This has been Carolyn Martin, Talking Art in the Quad Cities, for WVIK. Our theme music is provided by a Quad City legend, the late Ellis Cal. Thank you.